Today, we're going to talk about a wide range of topics. We're going to talk about fertility treatment. We're going to talk about loss. We're going to talk about what it feels like to experience multiple losses, what it feels like to be a person of color who experiences multiple losses, and the expression of others in your community when you go through fertility treatment. We're going to talk about donors and people of color looking for donors and not being able to find them. We're going to talk about so many things that really are important, not just to us as fertility patients, but also in our community. We're going to talk about representation, inclusivity, everything that's important to talk about. And we're going to be talking about it with Dr. Lori Johnson, because she's been through a lot of this herself, and she's been through a lot with her patients. And so she will explain many of these things that are important for us to know. So make yourself a cup of coffee, sit down, turn on this episode, and pay attention because I think you will really get a lot out of it. Welcome to Donor Conception Conversations. This is the one podcast created exclusively for people who are planning to use donor conception to build their family or for people who have already built their family with donor conception. I'm your host. My name is Lisa Schumann. I'm a researcher, a therapist, and an expert in donor conception. And over my more than two decades of experience working both in fertility clinics and in my private practice, the Center for Family Building, I've met with thousands of donor-conceived individuals, children, recipients, and donors. And I've learned so much, and I'm here to teach you all that I've learned in this podcast. My guests and I will talk about everything that you need to know to have a better journey to parenthood. If it's about donor conception, we're going to talk about it. Welcome to Donor Conception Conversations. This is the one podcast created exclusively for people who are planning to use donor conception to build their families or for people who already have donor-conceived children. My name is Lisa Schumann. I'm a therapist, an author, a researcher, and I am passionate about donor conception and helping people find a better path to parenthood. And on today's episode, we have Dr. Lori Johnson. She is a really interesting person and a uh, social media whiz. We can see a lot of what (laughs) she's doing on social media. She has a wealth of information, both personal and professional. She seems to really have her finger on the pulse of how it feels to go through fertility treatment unsuccessfully, to experience countless treatments and miscarriages and all sorts of other things. And she bravely shares it with her audience, which I really appreciate because it's so important for people out there to not feel alone. And she does EMDR and supportive therapy and all different types of therapies. She's talented in many ways. And today she's going to share with us both her personal experience and some also professional information that will be so helpful to us. So thank you for coming. I really appreciate it, Dr. Johnson. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really happy to be here. So can you tell our audience a little bit about your story and about what made you decide to move into this field or were you always, did you always work in the fertility field? I did not set out to be in reproductive health and to work in the infertility space. I think that this 
niche or space found me. I started off my career in community mental health. I really enjoyed working for a children's mental health agency and thought I was that was going to be my career. And uh, about six years in, I decided to transition to private practice, which was definitely a better fit for me clinically and uh, just being able to kind of sprout my wings uh, and work with more of the clientele that I wanted to work with. And what I started to notice was a shift happening in my clientele. I was working with more older women who uh, had delayed their family building efforts because of career and they wanted to feel kind of more established or they were, you know, they found their partners later. And also what that what that shift uh, kind of symbolized was also this difficulty in, you know, getting pregnant um, as well. And so that was where I started to, you know, kind of start doing the work before I even identified as a reproductive health therapist. And uh, mm. then I think that also mirrored my own experience, my personal experience. I met my husband later in life and wasn't really concerned about my fertility. And then after, shortly after we got married, I thought, okay, you know what? maybe it's time. I'm ready. Let's try. And uh, that's when uh, probably about six months after we got married was when I had the first of four losses within four mm. years. And then I went through very, obviously a very harrowing journey and took, um, you know, took some time off to regroup and reevaluate where I was clinically as well, because I felt like what was a very interesting experience for me as a therapist going through recurrent pregnancy loss and then also a therapist who was trying to seek support for fertility or loss-related issues. And even though I had a wonderful therapist at the time, this therapist wasn't necessarily as well versed on treatments as you know so I saw some gaps in the in the in the field that really let me know and affirmed that once I was further along in my journey that I would recommit uh, my, 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 you know, or shift my clinical practice um, to the infertility and loss space. And uh, so that's kind of what I've done for the past several years and really enjoyed how I showed up. Um, it's been very empowering for me and sharing, you know, a lot of the strength that I've learned um, and really powerful experiences and being able to impart that to my clients has, and hold space for them, and some of the most vulnerable times of their lives has been has been a, an honor, and a, you know, to be on their journey with them. Wow, that's incredible! And I I saw in some of the information that you wrote mm-hmm. on your page or on your website about your losses, and that you even got to the place where you were thinking about maybe living child free. That was yes. a consideration for you. It was because the one thing that I think is, you know, is, is important. And when you, when you are on the front end, as I like to say of fertility treatments, I was still relatively naive about like success rates. And, and I think that that was also, you know, part of how I grew up learning about reproductive health or my reproductive journey and thinking about it from a cultural perspective. I was taught how to not get pregnant. Uh, and also I think another misconception or stereotype that I grew up with was that, you know, being a black woman that I wasn't going to struggle with fertility issues or, you know, that coupled with seeing lots of older people um, over 40 having children and not necessarily realizing how much more difficult that process would be. I mean, you hear about fertility declining at at 35 and yet, you know, even with that information in the background, 
earlier in my career, I still, and even working with clients who were struggling, it didn't necessarily hit home that, you know, oh, I needed to pay attention to this. So there was definitely a shift in how I worked with that, that, that coincided with my, my, my own, you know, kind of journey. And, and I think the losses in particular changed uh, a lot of who I was personally and professionally. I think that you, you just going through grief in a way that you never imagined. Um, and when you think about grief in general, you think about losing a loved one at the end of the life cycle, where it's, of course, sad, undoubtedly, but at the same time, you know, losing a baby parents are, aren't supposed to, to, to bury their kids or, you know, your, your kids are supposed to bury you. And, yeah. and so I think that was a, you know, a huge shift in my kind of personal space and, and, and also my, my professional space too. And so did you find that there were certain types of, because I, I understand you do EMDR and psychotherapy, mm-hmm. Supportive psychotherapy. Yes. Were there certain types of therapy that you felt were particularly helpful for you for your grieving? Yes. And that is actually one of the reasons why I decided to become trained in EMDR. Uh, I, ironically, I was uh, I, I attended a, a workshop. The, the, the creator of uh, EMDR, Dr. Francine Shapiro, when she her model first came out over 20 years ago, and then or 30 years ago, and I might be dating myself even more, but that's okay. Mm-hmm. It was new and it was exciting, and it was very, um, I, I think, uh, very cutting edge. And you know, but at the same time, I, I wasn't really sure about it until later in my career, I think I read this book, you know, Dr. Bessel, Bessel van der Kolk's The Body Keeps the Score. And, you know, and going through that training and also doing some EMDR work um, helped me move through some pretty traumatic elements of my grief experience. And, mm. and, I, and, and, and I think the way that it works uh, is, is such a powerful, there's a powerful mechanism in terms of being able to metabolize or synthesize these traumatic events uh, and to have them not impede your your ability to function and engage with with life um, and, and so it, in some ways it's changed my life and you know and changed changed my clients lives and 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 so I'm, I was really happy to 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 finally get trained in that and to facilitate a, a sense of healing that that I felt was 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 very powerful for for, for me and and so mm-hmm. I think the other piece that was also another element of, of therapy and, and not that every therapist has to go through loss in order to work with someone who has experienced loss and what was helpful for for me personally was you know having my own therapeutic space with a therapist who could understand pregnancy loss in in that way and you know within the context of of the infertility space of being an older parent of trying to kind of achieve and actualize this this dream that i had always had but that was just so elusive and so i think it was a kind of a combination of you know emdr and and also supportive talk therapy that was that was helpful for me and also a little bit of travel therapy too because mm. uh, i think what was another healing point was you know just after my husband and i experiencing so much loss and there were so many like associations in our in our house and our town and mm-hmm. you know we, our 
our fertility clinic is literally five minutes down the road. And so it was really therapeutic for us to be in a different state or country to to have these experiences that allowed us to connect outside of our grief experience, outside of our individual mm-hmm. and collective grief experiences to reconnect with each other. And, and that actually was another beautiful supportive element as well. And something that I try to make sure that my clients cultivate as well. Because Yeah. Change your whole environment. Yes. Yes. Because it allows you to do the work. You know, you need those moments of reprieve or restoration in order to have the yes. energy to, to manage the deeper, you know, the deeper feelings. I completely agree with that. I think that's so important. I completely agree with you. And I think not enough people appreciate that. And certainly if you're on this fertility roller coaster, it's hard to get off. It is. Right? It is. It is. It's a roller coaster you didn't choose to, you didn't choose to ride. <laughs> no, it's true. So I just want to wind back for a moment to something Mm -hmm. that you said earlier. You said, you know, being a woman of color, never really thinking about, A, how do I get pregnant when Mm -hmm. all you've ever learned is how to not get pregnant? Mm -hmm. And then B, being a professional woman and feeling like your life is moving forward and maybe you get married later or you meet your partner later. And then C, you have this other issue where you feel like culturally, as a woman of color, you feel like this is just something that your family does. And there's no expectation that there's going to be these issues. So how do all of those things intersect? And do you feel that those things are continuing to be problems for women of color? Or do you think that's changing? I think it's both. I think that there are cultural messages and I can, you know, probably speak a little bit better to the cultural messages around being a a black woman or an African American woman. Um, but I think that some of these messages kind of, you know, do extend to the Latina and Hispanic populations and also the Asian populations. Um, I, I think that as far as black women are concerned, you know, there's this, idea and stereotype that we're hyperfertile and and that is um, a message that I think has some troubling and you know but very real roots in our country's history of slavery where we were used for breeding purposes and mm-hmm. we were experimented on and you know there were lots of assumptions about our sexuality that were really born out of that 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 time and so and so I think that what that con- contributed to was this idea that, you know, since we were often used to to breed future slaves for, for slave owners and this idea that, okay, we can get pregnant easily or, you know, there's just the sense of hyperfertility. And that has been a message that's carried over. And, and, and I think that I remember hearing even talking to a couple of my friends earlier on in my in my journey and one of whom happened to be a nurse and she even told me she was like Lori you're fertile and 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 you know so I was still getting that that messaging even though I had the knowledge to know okay you know what I'm struggling like no this doesn't make sense um but in some ways you know if I'm struggling with that information with you know being a professional in the field and you know trying to 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 really integrate all of this you know it's like I can only imagine what this means for you know for other individuals who are you know who look like me who are trying to make sense out of the cultural messaging and yet the silence that exists within our community about you know infertility and pregnancy loss and you know and then trying to seek seek help and support. So 
What I have noticed though, because my, you know, this was probably about 10 years ago, all of this started to happen for, for me is that in with the rise of social media, which has allowed us to disseminate information for us to feel more connected and, and to share, it's brought this infertility and loss community closer to, to together. And, and I think mm-hmm. being able to see that, you know, there are lots of other people of color that are struggling and they're, they're not alone. And I think the more that people see that and see the representation, it gives others courage to talk about their struggles. Have you had that happen? Have you had Black women come to you and say, I'm really struggling with this. I watch your journey. I see you've struggled with it. I, I feel also feel lost. And, you know, culturally, I feel this is really going to be an issue or I feel confused by it, or my family doesn't understand it. What are the things that you're hearing most? I think that Black women do seek me out specifically because they uh, want to talk to somebody who looks like them. I think it can help create a sense of comfort and identification. Um, and even though we know that you know we're not a monolith in our community, there is a way that they might not have to Censor um, their and and you know their, their their feelings and and to be more more present and, and open about it and talking about you know like what it's like in their in their families because you know nobody talks about loss or fertility and you know mm. and the, and potential shame that might come you know from that and I think it creates a little bit of a um, you know just seeing that representation is important you know and the, and, and I think it just kind of cuts through you know just layers of just feeling like being able to connect a little bit more deeply, um, you know, to, to someone that, again, just, just looks like them and that could potentially understand their historical perspective and, and hold space for it and not have to explain it in a way that just might feel exhausting and very akin to what it feels like for people who are going through loss and infertility, trying to explain their experience to people who don't really understand, mm. you know, cause I think mm. we've all heard about, you know, like just when, um, well-meaning family and friends will have questions about like the IVF journey for some, you know, fertility treatments. And you might hear in the community, just like, it's hard to talk to people who don't, who don't get it. And they just, you know, and so I think that's, it's very similar to, you know, why um, individuals of color or black women in particular might, might seek me out for, for support. And you also mentioned this idea that you have this, this change, right? Because you have this cultural experience of feeling like this is not something that you don't talk about openly in your family and this is something that culturally there's this expectation but then mm-hmm. also you have this new age of working women who don't get pregnant till later and so you're feeling i would imagine even more trapped because now you have this added burden of now you had this expectation. It's almost kind of like a setup. You had this expectation, like it's not going to be a problem. And then all of a sudden it is. And then it's like an extra slap to feel like I can't talk about it now. Right. Well, and this is an extra slap and, and why it's so important to, you know, kind of honor like that. This is, you know, this is part of the reproductive story that, you know, that people have and that they come to us with. It's like they're, they're, they're really, processing the fact that this narrative about their lives that had been written 
know, by them or by their culture or both, and how that story is not unfolding the way that they had imagined, the way it, it was supposed to be scripted, and you know, they're having to edit in, in the process. So I think there are multiple layers of, you know, just like you said, feeling slapped that are just very jarring and and hard to to negotiate, which really captures, I think, the essence of this journey. Yeah, it's true. Mm-hmm. And then what about the the women? Because of course, you know, we're here to we talk about donor conception. And what about mm-hmm. the people that you see who are now pursuing donor conception and they've mm-hmm. had all these issues that you're speaking about? They've had this expectation they're gonna get pregnant, it didn't happen. They had this expectation it would work out, it didn't. They have loss that they and grief that they can't even process because people are not really there for them. And then all of a sudden you need a donor and you may not be able to find one. Right. It's it's heartbreaking because I think if my memory serves me correctly, that even the data around accessing care for, for Black women, I think the last time I checked uh, that... Black women in particular, when compared to their white counterparts, are going to enter into fertility treatments two years later. And so in, wow. in addition to uh, this delay in family building because of, you know, finding a career or excuse me, establishing one's career and or finding a partner, and then the delay in accessing care also means the potential delay in exploring other family building options besides IVF or IUI. And so there's another layer of grief that goes along with that. That becomes part of the story. And so part of the what I do is support people in managing that grief and continuing to explore options and what those options may mean and continuing to normalize their experience and, you know, exploring, you know, what each option might mean and, and particularly, um, you know, gametes or embryo donation. And then What's next? Because we have a shortage of sperm donors in this country in general, but we have certainly a shortage of sperm donors who are Black or egg donors who are Black. And, you know, I would say even Latina and Asian as well. But Mm -hmm. certainly, I think, you know, in the Black community, there's, you have this, you would probably feel as you're saying this apprehension anyway, and now you're kind of stuck feeling like now my choices are limited. I finally summoned the courage to do this thing. And now my, my choices are limited. What is a person to do in this situation? It's got to be so difficult. It is difficult. It is difficult. And it's part of this, this grieving process. And, you know, that I think that individuals or couples go through and, you know, and I think that, Kind of honoring just the strength and you know that it takes to, to to kind of move through the fertility process, you know, but then also you know just and, and managing disappointment after disappointment, and then to find that there's you know the options are out there aren't the the greatest. It's definitely another obstacle to you know that I think we're we're trying to address as a field, but on one end and at the same time, it's like honoring the reality for, for, for our clients and our, you know, our, our stakeholders and that, you know, there are some women who are choosing to remain childless. There are some, you know, couples or individuals who are choosing, you know, gametes that are outside of their ethnic or cultural community. And, and that becomes another kind of interesting nuance to, to talk about in terms of, you know, what that's going to mean and this, and how does that fit into the, the narrative for the couple and for the family and also for the for the child who is going to be growing up knowing that they 
don't have a biological connection, but then might not have the same cultural connection that they would have on top of that. And so I think there's some nuances that, you know, that we're having to hold space for, you know, some powerful conversations about that. But also it continues to highlight, I think, the ways in which we as a field have still have a lot of work to do um, in terms of how we talk about the issues um, that are facing our community and talk about it in a culturally specific way and doing more to recruit Black donors um, or and doing more you know, outreach as well. I think representation is so powerful. Like I explained earlier, you know, it just with social media and being able to see so many other people who are struggling the way that you've struggled, it empowers people. They see themselves in the community and that gives them, gives people strength to talk about, you know, what they're doing. And, and I just really appreciate so many donor conceived parents of donor conceived individuals talking about their journeys and, and, and normalizing the donor conception process. Because again, I think that that becomes a touchstone and, and it normalizes the conversation. So I think that there's so much that, you know, that's continuing to happen. And I'm hopeful that we'll continue in that way of, you know, through more awareness and conversation, you know, that we can demystify some of the, the, the elements of the process and also potentially address the potential shame and, you know, and uh, that that might be kind of present for potential donors and or for potential potential intended parents. So you mentioned recruitment. Do mm-hmm. you think that that's the main problem that the sperm and egg banks are not actively recruiting black donors? Is that do you think that's what's causing the problem or do you think there's some reluctance on the part of potential donors? What do you think's happening there? I think there, it's a multifaceted problem. I think that on our end as professionals, I think that we can do a lot in terms of, you know, raising awareness, education, and representation. And so that's why, you know, it's one of the reasons why even after I pivoted professionally to work more in the reproductive health space, I went back for additional training to, to facilitate evaluations for, for egg donors or sperm donors and for intended parents as well, you know, because people kept seeking me out. And that lets me know that my presence matters. It helps people normalize. Mm-hmm. It helps normalize the, the process. So, so I think on the, on the provider standpoint, um, and maybe call it marketing, but it is in a way of, you know, just people need to see themselves. They need to see themselves in their treatment team. They need to see themselves in the literature. They need to hear us talk about them because the way that is, has been perceived is that, you know, you're, there's already this idea that, uh, in, at least in my community, that, you know, infertility is, is, is a white person's issue. And, you know, if mm. you don't hear people talking about it, then you, then that unfortunately can reinforce that, that stereotype. And, and it's such a surprise for, for Black people to hear that Black women in particular are 52 times more likely to suffer from infertility and, you know, wow. be half as likely to actually seek treatment. So the, the opposite can be true. So there's a lot that we can do around education that can, um, you know, that can change the narrative. And also, I think the other piece that factors into this is just a, a general mistrust of the medical system, which I think culturally makes sense. And we have to honor that the medical system has not been kind to the Black community. And 
when you think about even how you know IVF was created and and if people don't know the story of Henrietta Lacks, I really would encourage people to look her up. But because of her cells and how her cells grew, this is a woman, an African-American woman from Baltimore who had a very interesting case of cervical cancer and her and the doctors found that her cells, I'm, I'm not doing justice and I don't want to butcher <laughs> what they discovered, but the reality is, is that, you know, they, they, they took her cells and they were able to use those cells and, and because of how they replicated or whatever they did medically. And part of that was used to, to, you know, part of the process of creating IVF. But it was all done without her consent. And there have been multiple instances in our medical history of medical tests being carried out on our communities mm-hmm. without, without consent. And so there still is this mistrust. Um, and then when you have providers that don't look like you and might not appreciate some of the cultural differences and how medical issues might show up, it leads to misdiagnosis. It can lead to um, just some distances in communication that make diagnosis even I think, more difficult. Difficult and people can feel, you know, misjudged, and that further kind of alienates people from getting help that they need. So, mm-hmm. again, that's kind of on our end as providers to help bridge the gap. Um, and if we're giving a lot of lip service to, you know, being culturally informed and providing services to, to diverse populations, we need to make sure that our, that our actions are congruent with that um, as well mm-hmm. in our training. And I think that can also go a long way with again, reinstilling or rebuilding trust and the community being able to access that a little bit more. And then, and I think on, you know, just what that also does in terms of just, you know, as a, you know, being a touchstone in the community, it helps the community feel, you know, less judged and, uh, you know, less fearful. And I feel like that's something from a more personal advocacy kind of standpoint that yeah, I think it's another reason just kind of speaking up can, can be helpful and healing and addressing some of these the connection between these these issues. Yeah. And I would imagine also this, you know, issue of unfairness probably comes up a lot too, mm-hmm. right? I mean, you're kind of going through all of these obstacles in treatment and you probably feeling as many people feel, and I've heard many people say that they feel that this is, you know, such an unfair process. And then, you know, here you are having to choose a donor who may not look like you Right. And or have the same cultural background, or maybe you find one or two and you feel kind of cornered. Do I choose them or do I choose someone who doesn't have my background? And then all of a sudden the child may not look like me, or do I decide to be child free? Or, you know, how am I going to make this decision? And it's really kind of unfair again, all over again. Yes. Another level of, you know, of injustice that is associated with infertility and loss. It's its part of the story and you, it's our job to kind of help people lean into that. It isn't fair and allow that, you know, that your experience of that unfairness to be what it's going to be so that you can allow yourself space to, to, to figure out what makes sense for you moving forward. And yeah. is the desire to, you know, to continue to build your family still there? And, um, or is this part of a, you know, a decision of closing that chapter? And I think another piece, which we started to talk about a little bit before, can, that is so difficult, is that I think that when people talk about openness, and we talk about it a lot mm-hmm. here, mm-hmm. about open relationships, open donation, mm-hmm. and yes, that's an ideal circumstance, but I think 
it's very easy when we know that it's an ideal circumstance to be very cavalier about it and say, well, you absolutely have to choose an open donor. But, mm-hmm. you know, if you are a person of color and you choose, you want your child to look like your family, or even if you just say, I want my grandfather to have some, to have a grandchild with the same cultural background, whatever it is that's mm-hmm. motivating you, I think it's, you're entitled to make the choice that you want to make. And unfortunately, mm-hmm. you may not be able to have a donor who's open, right? right. And, and that's the way it is. And so I feel badly because I think so many people feel that pressure. Well, you must, without question, choose an open donor or don't bother moving forward mm-hmm. with treatment. And that's a tough position for people to be in because they may have no choice. They may have no choice. And, and I feel like the messaging around open or known donors versus, you know, unknown donors is is shifting. And I'm glad to see that shifting too, because in this age of, you know, of DNA testing, and that's how I think a lot of people are starting to, you know, a lot of older people are discovering that their donor conceived is they're taking these 23andMe mm-hmm. or ancestry tests and uh, learning that they don't, you know, they they didn't, they're not who they thought they were. And so mm-hmm. I, I'm glad to see and hope that that conversation can change as we even do those evaluations to begin with, to set up the expectation around a sense of openness, because I, you know, I think there's laws are kind of changing around that because the most important thing that donor conceived people are, you know, aside from, I think the most important information that they are wanting to know is just their medical history and having that information, it, it makes sense. It's a, it's definitely a shift. It's a shift. And I, I think historically it, it made, you know, we thought we were making the best decision at the time and recommending closed donations and, you know, not necessarily thinking about attachment or medical history or anything that, you know, that donor conceived individuals might be important to, to them. But, um, you know, as we're getting and hearing more of their voices, um, you know, I think that, that that's shifting. And that's also something that, you know, I try to help my clients or potential intended parents understand and, and, and kind of wrestle with as, as they're making their decision too. It's, it's not just black or white, you know, there are just so many, I think, different things that people have to, to kind of weigh, prioritize. Yes. And people have to think about a, a lot of that. And of course, there's no such thing as anonymity, but if you only have one or two donors to choose from, mm-hmm. there's not a lot of decision to right. make. And mm-hmm. so I think it's a really difficult place that we're in yeah. history where openness fortunately is become more prominent. But at the same time, mm-hmm. if you choose a donor who ethnically or racially or culturally is going to be similar to you, and that's a priority for you, you may have very few choices, unfortunately. Right. Yes. Yeah. So yes, unfortunately, that's a that's an issue. But mm-hmm. so just kind of back to the the donor. Do you feel like so you feel like if the clinics and the banks were um, actively recruiting um, more donors of color, more black donors specifically, as you were talking about, you feel like that would be very helpful. I think so. I think mm-hmm. so. I think part of being you know, representing, you know, and servicing a diverse population is really making sure that you're connecting to the diverse population and making sure that, you know, your, your staff, your, your, your approach, you know, again, represents, represents that. And so, and I think outreach is a part of that. And, you know, because 
you know, I th- I'm always very aware of when I go into a doctor's office, you know, the, the racial makeup of the doctor's office. Do I see hmm. magazines that reflect, you know, that reflect me or my family? Are there people of color on staff? And if they're not, I pay attention to that. Um, so, so that's why representation is, is so important um, because I know that historically that I'm going to be treated differently. And, and I think that if there isn't necessarily a sense of diversity, or I'm more likely to, you know, to kind of have an adverse, you know, kind of medical experience. And sadly, that kind of comes from some of the data uh, that is uh, connected to maternal health. And that, that says we're, we're more likely to be, to have successful, you know, births and pregnancy outcomes when we're cared for providers that look like us. And so, mm, you know, it's like, really? what is, yeah, yeah. So that's, um, so that's something that, you know, that we, we can pay attention to and uh, yes. need to pay attention to. That's so important. Well, I hope mm-hmm. everyone who's involved in the medical community who's listening to this takes heed because I think that's really important. And we've, kind of learned that lesson, certainly in the queer community and Mm -hmm. in so many other communities. And so we have to just keep that going Mm -hmm. and remember that, um, you know, diversity is diversity and Mm -hmm. we need to make sure that everyone, you know, really thinks about that also. Mm -hmm. All these issues, I'm really glad that you're bringing them, you know, to the light, Lori, because this information needs to be out there constantly for people to see and for people to understand because, um, you know, we need to keep moving forward. As you're saying, this is a really difficult time for Mm -hmm. a lot of people and a really painful time. And particularly when you are in a situation where there's so many challenges, it's really helpful to make sure that at least you have providers who understand you and you have representation and you feel comfortable where you are. And as you're saying, your quality of care may actually be better. I think that's those yeah. are really important points. Thank you so much for sharing them. Thank you. My pleasure. So before we wind down, is there anything else you feel like we missed or that we should be talking about that the audience might want to know? You know, I appreciate all that you do to, you know, for for the the donor conceived community. And and so mm-hmm. I'm just honored to be part of the conversation and trying to, you know, help advance the conversation and, you know, creating space for all voices. I'm still learning, um, but I'm still honored to be a part of this. And I, you know, I think I I just, I also want to let the, if there are older donor conceived people, I know that there are lots of groups out there and advocacy groups that have a lot of an invested interest in what we do as professionals. And, And I appreciate their lived experience and how they've shared that. And, and they've given us a lot of insights about what to do and what not to do in particular. And, you know, and I just want to kind of start to place a bug in everyone's ear because I have a colleague that is doing a research project on, 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 on individuals who've had positive experiences from the donor, um, from the, you know, from being a donor conceived person. And so I think that's going to give us some more wonderful information that we've known anecdotally about what's been helpful, but can kind of build on, you know, some of those, you know, positive experiences. And so I think that, you know, like, I'm just grateful. It's a long-winded way of saying, you know, it can be daunting at first and not to say that it's not difficult and family building through donor conception is still a beautiful thing. And um, so I think there's, a, you know, just a lot that we can do through this 
you know, these channels of building awareness and normalizing, normalizing this so that we can support all of those who, who need it. That's great. Well, that, I think that's a wonderful way to wrap up tonight. And thank you so much for coming. I really appreciate it. And um, is there some place that people can reach out to if they have more questions on social media or your website? Absolutely. You can email me at Dr. Lori, D-R-L-O-R-E-E at drlaurijohnson.com or uh, Instagram at drlaurijohnson. Great. And for all of you out there, thank you so much for listening tonight. This was a really important conversation for us to have, and hopefully we'll be able to have more like this. And if you like this episode, please let me know. You can press like, you can subscribe, you can write a positive comment. I'd always love to hear what you have to say. And certainly you can reach out to me at familybuilding.net anytime. I really loved your attention and having you with us and joining us in our little community here and come back for our next time because we have lots more to share.